Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 42. It was not over. The aftermath of Bull Run. So, what happened? In one sense, that's a very easy and simple story to explain. At the first great battle of the war, the battle that was meant to decide the war, a large proportion of the Union troops, tired and with their command apparatus broken, routed straight off the field. This failure caused the retreat of the rest of the army. It was not inevitable. In the future, northern soldiers would accept far greater punishment in the service of far less success. But it did show a fatal lack of professionalism by both troops and, far worse, their officers. That was an awful weakness, and would require nearly two years to fully overcome. Bull Run was not, in the main, a soldier's battle. That is, it was not won or fought out primarily on the endurance and courage of the ordinary soldier. And yet it was also not much a matter of strategic genius. True, McDowell had a very good plan, and Beauregard little plan at all. Notably, Joe Johnston's improvisation had something to say on the matter as well. Yet the primary decisions were made at a lower level. The key actions at Bull Run nearly all came from colonels or brigadiers, or at least the officers leading regiments or brigades, given the still messy command structure. For the most part, the good ones adapted, kept control over the units as best as possible, and acted with purpose and clarity. This applies to both Union and Confederate officers. Had Nathan, Shanks, Evans not run towards the enemy at first warning, the Union very likely would have devoured him in short order, followed by striking the remaining Confederate units in turn. Evans didn't have many men to lead, but he slowed the flanking column just long enough. Despite numerous setbacks over the course of the battle, the extra hour or two made all the difference. And many battles in the future would go in, broadly speaking, the same way, holding on just long enough, or advancing with just enough energy and speed to outmatch the other fellow. Although it would take time for everyone to realize it, the age of Napoleonic Dash was done. This had become the era of industrial warfare, warfare of endurance. If the killing fields of the Somme and the focused mechanical power of the Blitz both lay far in the future, their genesis was found here, on the banks of Bull Run Creek. No man could see that far, not yet. And yet within four years of war, most of the basic technologies would not only exist, but will have actually been used on the battlefield to take lives. In due course, we shall discuss the rapid progression and transformation of technology in the boiling vessel of war. In the here and now, Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis had to make some crucial decisions in the immediate aftermath of Bull Run. They made these decisions in large parts based on the measurable outcomes of the battle, in fact. So let us examine these. McDowell's Army of Northeastern Virginia so named as to create a distinction between it and other regional armies, had a reported strength before the battle of 28,500. 460 men were reported killed and another 1,100 wounded. He lost an additional 1,300 men captured or missing. 
Some of the missing men would straggle in eventually, or turn up elsewhere in the north having taken to their heels in another direction. In the main, though, that final category mostly meant captured, although indeed some bodies were left on the field either unidentified or unrecovered. That said, these were hardly gigantic numbers. Most of the captured men fell victim to the Confederate cavalry in the rout. Though a small force at the battle, that cavalry swept in during that retreat and rounded up as many prisoners as they could handle. The combined forces of Beauregard and Joe Johnston brought 32,250 men into the battle, one of the relatively few times Confederate forces would truly outnumber the Union. Most of these occurred during the first year of fighting. It shows the incredible importance of Johnston's rush to the fight, as well as the key significance of his final brigades falling on the Union right. Without those numbers, McDowell would almost certainly have won. The Confederates lost slightly fewer than 400 dead, but almost 1,600 wounded. Their number of missing or captured men is hardly even worth noting. That said, the punishment the Confederates received, despite their superior total numbers, showed once again that the Union boys had plenty of fight to give, and drove as hard as the Southerners when it came to battle. That said, in the sum, this was not an especially bloody fight. In fact, by the standards of the mid-war, it was hardly more than a skirmish. Although obviously disappointed by the loss and the annoying humiliation involved, President Lincoln was by no means beaten or broken by it. He hoped to win quickly, but the tool had failed, so he would try again with another tool, one sharpened and strengthened for the task. To that point, a great many men in the North collapsed in despair, not coincidentally the rather useless Horace Greeley. Although never short of ideas or words, Greeley never had any shortage of bad ideas or pointless words either. A staunch foe of slavery, he was also somewhat dubiously patriotic and held all the emotional balance of a toddler. Upon hearing news of Bull Run, he lapsed into panic and wrote a desperate message to President Lincoln, urging him to effectively surrender to all that Jefferson Davis might ask. Lincoln, presumably glancing at that note, might have wondered if the abolitionists had somehow lost their spines. Fortunately, most were made of sterner stuff than Greeley. Other anti-slavery foes had no intention of surrendering. Instead, they put their energies into rebuilding and rearming, this time in deadly earnest. As for defeat, well, the nation and its leaders alike would just have to learn how to accept defeat in stride and work towards the next victory. In his July 4th message to Congress, Lincoln himself said, Our popular government has often been called an experiment. Two points in it our people have already settled, the successful establishing and the successful administering of it. One still remains, its successful maintenance against a formidable internal attempt to overthrow it. It is now for them to demonstrate to the world that those who can fairly carry an election can also suppress a rebellion, that ballots are the rightful and peaceful successors of bullets. Until now, the calling of troops had been done by executive order under emergency conditions. Lincoln had justified it before Congress, but that would no longer suffice. Yet Lincoln also no longer needed to do it. Now he had Congress by his side, and there was very little dissension in July. Congress passed a bill raising an army of 500,000 men, 
Probably more soldiers under arms the entire continent put together had ever seen in history on one day before. And this army would receive modern armaments and be supplied by modern railroads. This was hardly a total war footing, and yet the United States was now investing in warfare to a degree far deeper than ever conceived since the days of the Founding Fathers. The decision not to give up and to continue the war had many reasons, but fundamentally to do otherwise was to give up the United States. Rather notably, therefore, Bull Run ultimately inspired renewed efforts and placed the Union on a strange and frightening road. No one, from Lincoln on down, yet realized it. Yet the war had just taken a starkly different turn. This would no longer be a mostly civil dust-up with some military banners flying alongside. No, this was going to become a true war with all that signified. The Union would not allow itself to be broken up without a mighty struggle. But the building of a modern military force would require building a new Union. The old foundations of the public had been laid on certain assumptions and a much weaker association of the states, in which each largely handled its own affairs. The Confederacy, at least initially, sought to loosen those ties but not break them, or only break them strategically and conveniently for its own purposes. Now, we are going to cover the weaknesses of this position in time. States' rights, as a banner, would fail to carry the Confederacy and would cause fatal internal conflict. But that discussion belongs to another day, as it is a huge, complicated topic on its own. Also, it became tightly bound up with the conflicting ideology of white supremacy and slavery in the South, and how those interacted. This conflict has not yet become clear, and the nascent opposition to intense, tight nationalization would only coalesce in the spring of 1862, when the near loss of Richmond compelled a new war policy for Jefferson Davis, much as Bull Run compelled a new war policy for Abraham Lincoln. But that policy, begun as a war measure, would eventually require Lincoln to in effect refound the nation upon new ideas, if not entirely new laws. It is for that very reason that Abraham Lincoln, a prairie lawyer of no great distinction, a politician of minor note, became perhaps the greatest president after only Washington himself. He found a nation of brick, and left one of marble. And yet to begin that revolution, Lincoln called a seemingly strong tool named George Brinton McClellan. In this hour, McClellan had wrought miracles of near-instant militarization. True, he was not yet thoroughly tried in battle. Yet the reality was that no available war leader in the country was well tested in that field. All the officers were either very inexperienced he would ever led so much as a regiment, or simply too old to lead effectively. A younger generation would have to learn the hard way. To the great chagrin of Lincoln and General-in-Chief Scott, those men who had commanded regiments in battle seemingly all went south. In this case, Joe Johnson was the most noteworthy name. He commanded a regiment of voltagers, light infantrymen similar to Zouaves, in Mexico. Even that amount of command experience had suddenly become priceless. But returning to McClellan. Five days after Bull Run, he arrived in Washington and proceeded to take command. Whatever else he was, McClellan was one darn good organizer and rapidly put the army back into some semblance of military order. At the time, 
discipline among many units had largely broken down. The officers, untried and unready, lost control over the men. So the soldiers, really civilians playing at it still, wandered out of camp and into town whenever they felt like it, and drank up their pay. This, you may imagine, led to no small amount of chaos in the streets of Washington and booming business among bars and hotels with a very seedy reputation. Let us just say that women of questionable repute suddenly found themselves with a lot of disposable cash and leave it at that, because this is a family podcast. McClellan ended that nonsense very quickly and very thoroughly. He also ended a great many sloppy procedures and, at the same time, instituted a very thorough practice of drill. After all, if those soldiers suddenly had a lot of time on their hands, then it suddenly needed filling. And what better way to whip some shape into the men and run off all that excess energy than with drill? Followed by drill, then drill, some light drill after lunch, a session of drill, tough drilling while the sun was high, and then a little drill before dinner. To which point, there was probably no drill after dinner because he needed to drill the officers in the evening, a matter we'll return to momentarily. Among the improvements McClellan made was instituting tight security in other areas, most notably preventing anyone without a very good reason from crossing over the lines into Virginia. He may not have been clearly aware of the spying going on previously, but tight-lipped secrecy about the Army's intentions made good sense. There would be no more slack discipline and pretty plantation bells wandering as they wished. Unfortunately, those front lines now lay far too close to Washington for anyone's liking. Sometimes the Confederates occupied advanced posts right on the Potomac itself. Though they weren't quite so close next to the city, Confederate pickets stood guard within sight of the Capitol building, still half-built. There's a metaphor, if you care for it. General McClellan would tightly grip the immediate environments of Washington, though, and mostly leave the south side of the Potomac to the reps. He had enough on his plate just managing this force and whipping it into shape. However, the consequence was to leave many strong points or critical locations to the Confederacy. Most dangerously, this included the crucial mouth of the Potomac River, as well as anywhere along it they might station cannon, such as the small port at Acquia Creek. This, in effect, closed the river to Union shipping, except armed military vessels who could counter the lighter wagon-borne artillery with their own heavy ship's guns. With tough soldiers and good officers, most likely any commander would have gone after those nests and cleared them, posting his own forts there to prevent easy recapture. But McClellan's soldiers were still pretty green. Much worse, however, he had poor officers, or at least very inconsistent ones, as green as their troops. To deal with the problem, he instituted a selection system to weed out any who simply couldn't do the job. Though embarrassing for those chosen to leave, it did cut the officers simply unable to keep up, including some patriotic gentlemen of respectable age who turned out for their state as part of the militia. Others, either unable to handle military discipline or manifestly unsuited to army life, also exited the ranks. The remainder if unskilled in the arts of war and unschooled in army practices, at least ought to have the basic guts and brains to do a half-decent job. That was about as much as anyone could ask just then. Getting those junior officers at least half-schooled and half-skilled became one of the first and most important tasks for McClellan. Therefore, what were essentially night schools for officers were immediately set up by his order. 
West Point-trained generals, who had often been junior officers themselves before just arriving and receiving several promotions, taught these men the basics of army life and how to drill their soldiers. The officers, like as not, would go out the next day and share what they had learned with the soldiers under their command. It was a bit slapdash, a bit frenetic, and yet here a mighty power indeed grew in strength and confidence by the day on the banks of the Potomac. We'll return to these days in another episode, but to close out, let's return to the look at the consequences of Bull Run to the Confederacy. Our story properly begins during the battle itself. Even as some of the last reinforcements marched away north, one curious traveler, anxiety sharpening to a fine point, also arrived at Manassas Junction. That was Jefferson Davis, lately named President of the Confederacy. Everyone knew the first, and possibly only, real battle was about to begin, and much like Simon Cameron on the far side of it, he couldn't resist going to the front. Upon arriving, a scene of considerable chaos and gore greeted him. Wounded soldiers stumbled about, and other men, routed in a panic, swirled around rear areas. Concerned, Davis made his way north towards Johnson and Beauregard, or at least where his staffers supposed them to be. And yet, before Davis even reached the real field, the thunder of battle peeled away from him. Those last reinforcements had done their work and crumpled the Union extreme right flank. Before long, three victorious men gathered together for a meeting. Johnston, Beauregard, and Davis sat together and outlined a plan for the next day. President Davis authorized a follow-up attack on Centerville, and seemingly all went well. This was also near enough, the last day the three of them would ever be more than politely distasteful towards one another. The meeting itself even turned into a small but bitter point of contention later. It mattered little, though. In the aftermath of battle, the Confederate army nearly fell apart, almost to the same degree as the Union force a few miles away. They ran around occupying themselves with looting or souvenir hunting and rested on their laurels, Evidence their discipline differed rather little from the volunteers in Union Blue. It took several days to restore order to the command, by which point McDowell had long since packed up and left. General Johnston would take full command over the United Forces in this area, and advance towards the Union-held line of the Potomac, hence why those batteries partially blockaded the river. But he would shy away from any serious attacks, knowing that the much larger Union force could easily overwhelm him, if he attempted a river crossing. Instead, he dug in with whatever heavy guns he could scrounge up, and where he had none, he improvised with fakes. Deception could always work where strength failed. This was a lesson the Confederacy learned early and thoroughly, and too many Union commanders never did. That said, Johnson was forced to these measures because of the manifest weakness of his command. The Confederacy launched a revolutionary conflict without ever really considering the material or strategic elements in play. Even counting the slaves as a total national asset for them, and there's a lot of problems with that, they were still going to be outnumbered, two to one, or worse. Worse yet, the Union's war-making potential was, to put it mildly, utterly absurd. Its industrial base lay inconveniently out of reach, and so the Confederacy could not credibly threaten it. 
but the improved roads and rail network made a river of guns, cannons, uniforms, food, ammunition, and all else available immediately for the front lines. The Confederacy could, to a first approximation, provide none of these. Worse upon worse, Bull Run instilled a false confidence in many Confederates. That confidence gave them the spirit to fight on, often in desperate moments. Yet it also contributed to a sloppy and ill-informed assumption that they could also outfight the Yankees, forgetting that at Bull Run, the Confederates had the advantage of defensive lines, more numbers, and sheer luck following the initial Union success. Mary Boykin Chestnut, the wife of prominent Confederate James Chestnut, bragged that they require 600,000 to invade us. Truly, we are a formidable power. Even the proud and ever-so-mighty Southern elite, though, began to see the problem once the initial rush of glory wore off and reality began to set in. Even as some, such as Thomas Cobb of Georgia, proclaimed that Bull Run was the decisive victory everyone said, other men grimly noted that the northern plans for a new, enlarged, far more professional army were plainly visible. Edmund Ruffin, who once again had managed to place himself on the scene at Bull Run and set off a few more cannon, dreamt of marching on the north and burning a great city or two to satisfy his imaginary offenses. At the same time, though, Joe Johnston stared across the Potomac with concern. And there we will leave it for today. Our next episode will be a look at George McClellan to understand who he was, what his experiences were, and how he came to power in such a short order and with a remarkable set of political allies. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.